0: Grateful to be here today. So I was uh, asked to teach on how do we study Scripture for ourselves. And so that's what I'm going to talk about today. Because really, when we gather to what we're doing daily, and when we gather to what we're doing daily, and when we gather on Sundays, that is a celebration. And many of us as Christians, we're we're wholly depending on gatherings like this or a Sunday for our spiritual feeding rather than understanding that that's not what it's about at all. This is to uh, give you an injection of um, strength to keep doing what you're doing. And when we gather on Sunday, it's a celebration of all the things that we've been doing each and every day as we follow Jesus. You know, if I only ate, once or twice a week, I'd be very, very malnutrition, uh, malnourished. All right, so we've got to learn how to self-feed. And so I'm going to give you some tools today on how do you read scripture? Uh, and how do you self-feed and study uh, and grow as a follower of Christ day in and day out? Uh, a lot of questions, or, or one big question I get often is, well, what kind of commentaries or what kind of books do I read? And I just want to suggest to you, not which ones to read, but what do you look for when you read it. Number one is I want to encourage you to read and read often. Uh, Read old books. Like A lot of times we only read stuff that's written this year or the last couple of years. Read old books that have stood the test of time. You know, read things like, I can give you some suggestions like, you know, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, um, you know, just old older books. I mean, that's not really even that old, but like, you know, read things that are, have stood the test of time. But when you look at any kind of commentary, I want to encourage you to not read it for that person's interpretation because that's a human being who's most often, unless you're reading something Uh, of one of the church fathers. They're usually a contemporary of us. So don't read for the interpretation. Read for the for the factual information that they are building on. Read for historical context. Read for meaning of words. Read for uh, you know literary context in the scripture. And then prayerfully consider what you believe that to mean based on the facts. So that's just some encouragement. But how do we read uh, the Bible itself? Well if you were here Sunday, uh, we lifted up very briefly at the beginning of the Q&A, three criteria for interpreting Scripture. Uh, the first is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And what do I mean by that? I mean, when you read a text, you know, I read Matthew 4, right? The, and I have a question about that. The first thing that I need to do is to, to ask myself, well, does, does Scripture anywhere else talk about this? Does Scripture anywhere else define the terms that I'm looking at? Does Scripture anywhere else talk about the dates of what's happening here? Does Scripture anywhere else prophesy what would happen here? So what does other Scripture have to say about what I'm reading? A second question is, well, what's the context? So what, you know, this is not happening in 2022, so when did it happen? And what was taking place there? What were the political circumstances? What were the cultural circumstances? Uh, There's a language barrier. So the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And so what language is this in? And is that important for what I'm reading? Uh, And there, you know, if I, what I try to do, I did not, uh, let me say a word about seminary real quick. So I learned a lot of great things in seminary, but you know what one thing I didn't learn in seminary was very much about the Bible. That's really sad. <laughs> Most of what I've learned from the, in the, of Scripture has been since I've graduated from seminary. I've, I learned theology, systematic theology, church history, ethics, uh, sacramental worship, Christian education, but very little about the Bible. It's a, a sad commentary on our theological education. So this is something that you can do. You do not have to go to seminary. In fact, it would be a wasted effort. For most of us. This is something you can do. Uh, So when when I'm reading scripture, because I'm not a scholar of Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, I prayerfully ask the Lord to just speak to my heart. And if there's a word that pops off the page to me, especially if there's a word that I'm building my interpretation on, y'all, it is so easy to pull up a Greek or a Hebrew or Aramaic lexicon. You can just Google it. Just get on Google and look up a a L-E-X-I-C-O-N, a lexicon, and you can find a good definition of the Hebrew or the Greek or the Aramaic. And so if you're building your understanding of a scripture on a particular word, make sure that you're defining that word correctly, because we have people who have translated it into English, and they don't all agree on what those words mean. So... Uh, The context. What is the historical, the literary, the cultural, the political context? And then finally, and I think most importantly, is you need to read Scripture always through the lens of Jesus. We've heard it before. The Old Testament is Jesus, the gospel, concealed. And the New Testament is the gospel revealed. That as you read through Scripture, always be asking why is this important based on who Jesus is? So let me give you an example of that. Uh, Many, many, many uh, times I've been asked the question, well, if God is a God of love, then why would God tell uh, the Israelites to go into Canaan and kill every man, woman, and child? And that's an incredibly difficult question to wrestle with. And to be able to say to somebody who's wrestling with their faith, well, God is God and you're not, and we just have to trust God, that's not sufficient. even though that's truth, because there's an element of God that we will never understand because if we understood it, he would cease to be God and he would become a peer. But that's not sufficient in that moment. And so you teach people to read scripture through the lens of Christ, to understand that the people that God was telling the Israelites to wipe out, number one, were Uh, idolaters, they were people who were practicing pagan faith, they were sacrificing children, Uh, there were sexual practices of their worship that were detestable to God, and the Israelites were intermarrying with those people and they were losing their centrality of faith on God alone. But not only that, but we need to understand that Israel provided the bloodline through which the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And God knew as the people were intermarrying that bloodline was being tainted, the bloodline through which the the Savior of the world was to come. And so God was trying to create a a pure bloodline, a pure culture, a a platform through which the Christ would come, but also that when he came there would be a a religious uh, understanding of God, a a faith understanding of God that would give context to who Jesus was and what he was doing. That's why Jesus came and he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it to the very letter. Because God had created a context for him to show up. And so always read through the lens of Christ. When we read scripture, as we're looking at those three questions, uh, what is uh, the, the context of it? Uh, what, what does other Scripture say about it? and what does uh, Jesus have to do about it, then you're gonna go from there and you're always gonna ask the basic questions of like journalism, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who's in this story? What's happening? Where is it happening? When is it happening? How is it happening and why? And you're just gonna break it down real simply like you would any historical book or anything you would read and ask yourself those questions and then run it through the lens of those three things. What does scripture say about it? What's the context? Uh, And where is Jesus in it? So let me just give you a couple examples, and then we're going to go through an exercise together. Uh, One of the examples would be uh, Jesus on the cross. We've heard this many times. As he's dying, he's gone through uh, these, there's the seven last words of Christ, and he's gone through, uh, that day began at 6 a.m., and it ended at 3 p.m., which just happened to be the hours of preparation for Passover, meaning that was when the, the priest began to prepare the lambs for the Passover sacrifice. You know, that's reading in context. Uh, none of this was circumstance or accident. It wasn't just a, it happened by, you know, just randomness. Jesus was put on the cross as the priest began to prepare the, the Passover lambs. And it tells us that he gave up his life. He didn't just die. He gave up his life at the hour of the sacrifice as the priests were behind them in the temple cutting the throats of the lambs. Jesus gave up his life. And so we're reading it in that context. And then there's this phrase where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many through the years have struggled to understand what in the world is Jesus talking about? Now certainly there's an element here where Jesus has taken sin upon Himself. He's taken sin upon His body. Uh, There are a couple of different deaths that Jesus undergoes. Uh, Before He entered physical death, He experienced spiritual death because He took sin upon His body and there was this sense of isolation from His Father as He's crying out, My God, My God. And this preceded His physical death when He gave up His life because understand, Jesus was not marred by sin before that moment. Had he not given up his life, he would not have died because he was not under the curse of sin. And so he's experiencing the spiritual death. But it's not just that he's separated from God. There's something more. And it comes from Psalm 22. This is where you read scripture with scripture. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In other words, Jesus was quoting Scripture. Not only was he quoting Scripture, he was quoting the first verse of a song. Now, if I were to sing, start singing, and I won't, I'll spare you, but if I were to start singing a popular song and I just began with the first verse, many of you, if you knew that song, intuitively, you'd begin to hear the rest of the lyrics in your head, right? And it would have been the same with these Jewish people. As Jesus began to sing this song, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He doesn't have to sing the rest of the song. They would have began to hear it in their heads. And so he goes through, and I want you to hear the last few verses of Psalm 22 that Jesus sang, because uh, it's a very harsh psalm as you begin to read through it, but there's a significant shift at the end. So let me start in verse 25, or 24. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He's talking about God the Father. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him, all who are mortal, all who's, whose lives will end in, as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything He has done. So Jesus was not just crying out in despair because he felt like God had turned his back on him. He was using Scripture to interpret the events that he was experiencing. Yes, he felt separated from God, but he also had an understanding of what was happening, would set the stage for future generations to know the Lord, that you and I are here because of what he was willing to do. And this is how you you see how it changes when you interpret scripture with scripture. Another example, you look in the the gospels and you you encounter very early on this guy named John the Baptist. And there's this little phrase, uh, it's prophesied by John's father. And he didn't just come up with this, he actually brings this from the Old Testament where it says that this young man is going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Like, how is he going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children? Because if you look at the John the Baptist, uh, he wasn't in Christian education, he wasn't in therapy, he wasn't in, you know, family systems. Uh, He didn't do any of that. As a matter of fact, he was a hermit who lived out in the desert and didn't hang out with very many folks. And so what is he talking about? Well, he's quoting Malachi chapter 4. So Malachi 4, verse 4, Remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And this is quoted in Luke 1, 17. Now, Elijah, you, all right, let's go to the context. Uh, what's the context of the scripture? Well, um, Elijah was a, a prophet of God. He was one who stood up against false teaching, uh, particularly the, the false prophets of Baal. Uh, he experienced great uh, hardship. He spent time in the wilderness. Uh, he experienced uh, what he felt was an abandonment of God and great fear, and God spoke to him through a, a still small voice. Right? Remember these stories? Uh, John the Baptist was a man who lived in the wilderness. Uh, he experienced abandonment of those around him, particularly he lived in the first century where many of the Jews felt an abandonment by their religious leaders. That the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees had so twisted God's word and God's ways that there were a group of people who said, uh, even the sacrifices in the temple are no longer relevant because you so adulterated God's ways. And so they moved out into the desert. They practiced ritual purity. They focused on uh, living righteous lives. It was a group of people called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. And they had a particular practice out in the, in the wilderness. If you've ever heard of a place called Qumran, where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, have excavated multiple uh, holes in the ground called mikvahs. And it's just a, a Hebrew way of, of describing a baptismal font. Now what did John come and do at the beginning of his ministry? Well, he's John the baptizer. And so we have a context of of who John was, that he had experienced what he felt was an abandonment of his religious leaders, just as Elijah had felt an abandonment of uh, religious contemporaries, and he felt alone. And he was calling the people to turn to God, just like John was. He was in the wilderness, just like John was. And so there's the context. But then there's this funny little thing that happens where the people say, ask John who he is. And they asked John and they asked Jesus. Well, when they asked Jesus, Jesus said, well, this is Elijah, the spirit of Elijah that's come to fulfill the the prophets. And they're like, oh, okay, John, are you you Elijah? And John's like, I'm not Elijah. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, how in the world do we make sense of this? Well, as you read the whole of Scripture, what do we know about Jesus? Because we're going to see it through the lens of Jesus, too. Well, Jesus didn't have just one coming. He had how many? There's gonna be two, right? I hope this is, this is Bible 101. Uh, Jesus came in the flesh, and Jesus is gonna come again. Amen? Like we all know this is coming. All right, well, if, if Jesus says that John is the spirit of Elijah, but John is saying, I'm not Elijah, what, what are we to make of this? Well, the Bible is full as you read it, and you need to read it. And as a matter of fact, if you haven't read it all the way through, Don't worry yourself with trying to understand everything. Just read it through. Just read it through for what it is, and then go back and read it again and start to study it. Because you need to know the whole arc of it. 30 Days to Understand the Bible is a great book to help you. All right. Well, if Jesus is having not one but two comings, then we're going to have the presence of not one but two Elijahs. And in the Bible, it's full of what we call typologies, where a person will be a type of someone to come in the future. And so we hear, see as you read through, interpreting with Scripture, reading it in context through the lens of Jesus, that John the Baptist is a typology of the Elijah for Jesus' first coming and that we believe that Elijah will come again in his second coming. So it, It's ironic that Elijah did not experience a human death. He was just brought up to heaven. Uh, the only other person in the Bible that we see that with is a guy named Enoch in the old, uh, Genesis. And so it could be that Elijah makes a second appearance because he's never yet experienced death. You see how we read it through this lens. So let's just kind of practice what this would look like. So Matthew <coughs> chapter 4 is where we're going to land. I know we've got to move quickly here. And we're reading about the temptation of Jesus. All right. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, who, that's the devil. So if I were to do a word study, the word Satan comes from the word, the word hasitan, which means accuser. OK, so this accuser, the tempter, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So let's stop just right there for a second. If we're reading scripture with scripture, uh, where have we heard this kind of language before? In Genesis 3. All right. Where have we heard somebody question God's ways? Right at the beginning, Genesis 3. And it just so happens to be the same character, uh, Hasaton, the accuser. So he's he doesn't he's not very creative. He, he's kind of a one trick pony. And he does the same with us, guys. Like, most of us, we fall by the same temptations and the same lies and the same fears. He's not a very creative individual. All right. Keep going. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and said, Had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, And angels came and attended him. All right, so we can stop there. So let's start with our questions. Who is in the story? Jesus and Satan. All right, so we've got two people here in the story that we need to pay attention to. We've got Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who's come to save the world, who has a very specific purpose. And now we've got Satan, who's the accuser, who's accusing you and me. Uh, who wants to stop the Messiah. That that is his singular purpose. Throughout, from the the fall until he's cast into the lake of fire, Satan has one and only one purpose, which is to stop Jesus. And here we see a showdown of that. All right? What's happening? We know who, but what's taking place? Temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan All right, when is this happening? That's a really important part of the story. Well, to answer that question, we've got to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And the best place to look is in the same book that you're reading. So you start with right where you are. So what happens right before this? Jesus is baptized. And God says to Jesus, this is my beloved son. And there's a, a statement of identity the only other time this appears is at the Transfiguration, which ironically is a bookend of Jesus' ministry. So to start his ministry, uh, God says to Jesus, you are my son. To end his ministry, God says to James, uh, James John, and Peter, this is my son, listen to him. A statement of identity. This also, it's interesting that these two statements precede the two most difficult moments of Jesus' life. The temptation and the passion. All right. So, when is it happening? At the onset of his ministry. Because, right after this, if you keep reading, interpret scripture with scripture, immediately after this, Jesus starts collecting disciples and then starts teaching about the kingdom of God. So, this is the onset of his ministry. Where? In the wilderness. That's also important. We're going to discover. And then, why? Because D- Satan wants to disqualify Jesus from doing what God's called him to do. All right, so then if we run this through, interpret Scripture with Scripture. Well, what does Jesus answer the hasatan, the accuser, with each and every one of these three temptations? Scripture. Well, it would be really helpful if I know that there's Scripture being quoted to go find that Scripture. And it just so happens that Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. If you go look. Maybe you just have a good study Bible. It probably tells you on the side where that Scripture comes from. And what specifically is happening in the book of Deuteronomy is that the Israelites are in the wilderness. Oh, my goodness, where's Jesus at? He's in the wilderness. And it just so happens that the Israelites are in between slavery and the promised land. Oh, my goodness. Where's Jesus at? He's in between us being in slavery to sin and him initiating the new kingdom. And it just so happens that the Israelites are being tempted by Satan in the wilderness to question God's goodness and provision. And all through the wilderness, they start grumbling. Oh, where do we go back? And We want meat and all this kind of stuff. Well, oh my goodness, here's Jesus is in the wilderness, in between, also being tempted by Satan. And so Jesus knew the best place to answer Satan is to go to the, the scriptures and, and look at the same experience that I'm walking through. And that's exactly what he did. And he answers him, and he shows us, he gives us a map of what we do when we're facing temptation. Right? When we're facing lies or deception or temptation, we answer it with Scripture. And we know that even though not every single question is mapped out in Scripture, our life experience is mirrored in Scripture. And when you're going through a difficult time or a temptation or a struggle or a question, your life has been mirrored already in God's story. And if you know it, that's why it's important to just read it through before you get fixated on trying to break it down, just f- read the story, is you'll find yourself in the story and you'll know, begin to know where to go. And Jesus maps that out for us and teaches us to trust. All right, well, what about the context? Well, the context is that Jesus is about to begin his ministry. And he's just been baptized. And now we need to understand, it, it says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who leads him. A lot of us, we can think that like he's been um, ambushed by Satan, and that is not the, the case at all. This was a, a divine appointment that Jesus had with Satan, and Jesus made the impo- appointment, not Satan. <laughs> God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sent Jesus out into the wilderness on purpose for this very encounter. Satan thinks it's because he's gonna have an opportunity to disqualify Jesus. God knows that this is Jesus' initiation, which by the way is what a baptism is. You're dying to your old life, you're being brought into new life and immediately initiated into the church for God's purposes for your mission. And this is what Jesus had just experienced, not because he needed cleansing of sin, but because he was being initiated into the mission. And now he's being purified, not because he's broken, but as because he is the second Adam, he he had to experience everything that you and I experience. So his life is being purified, not for his sake, but for our sake to initiate him into the mission. And so he's going through this temptation. Uh, he gives us an example here of things that that we are to do that he doesn't do again ever in his life. Particularly, he's fasting. And it's actually a point of contention after this that the Pharisees and scribes and other religious leaders get mad at Jesus because he's not fasting. And so he's doing this for a very particular purpose, which is to humble himself and to position himself to, to walk through what you and I walk through. So he's living in the wilderness, uh, and we have this supernatural event. Uh, Jesus answers script, uh, Satan with scripture. Uh, we could go into to more about this. 1 uh, Peter uh, talks, alludes to this with the, the temptations that we face uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Those are mirrored here in the three temptations of Jesus. Uh, we don't have time to go into that today, but that's a way you interpret Scripture with Scripture. Right. But what about looking through the lens of Jesus? Well, Jesus is about to begin a miraculous ministry where uh, his identity is going to be verified over and over and over and over. So think about this. God has just told him in the baptism, you are my son. That's who you are. That's who your identity is. Now that identity is being made clear to Satan because Satan is not omniscient. Satan does not know everything all, all the time, everywhere. And so they are making it clear to Satan, the one you've been trying to stop for thousands of years now, he's now showed up and Royal Rumble is about to start. So it's being made clear to him. And then just immediately after this, his identity is going to be start being made clear to the people, starting with the disciples in a place called Capernaum. And so we're seeing the identity of him. And, so we're, and we're also seeing a couple of different things, not just his identity, but we see his human connection to us. And this is what this is driving home as you look at the context, that he's human, go through, goes through everything we go through, and his divine nature, that he is not overwhelmed or overcome by Satan, but he, he displays a, a absolute authority and power over him. All right. We could keep going as we walk through this. Um, if we were to go to the very next text, we could ask the same, who, what, when, where, why, and how, uh, and run it through these, the lens as he calls uh, the disciples, you know, where's he at, Capernaum, well, why? Uh, he, there's lots of context around that that we could talk through of, you know, Capernaum had a major thoroughfare right, ran right by the city uh, from Tyre all the way down to Egypt. And so it'd be like setting up shop next to Interstate 55 um the, the um, religious teachings in Capernaum were more gracious and merciful and open to Gentiles. And Capernaum was a place of ordinary people. You know, Jesus went after ordinary people. We could talk about discipleship and look at the historical context of what that means. That it wasn't about information, it was about transformation. Um, that, that these guys have been passed over. There's so much we could go into, but just that, that's just a quick kind of little practice Of looking at it, who, what, when, where, why, and how, and then asking those three questions. How do I read it? Scripture according to Scripture. What's the context? And then uh, how is it focused on Jesus? And so you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand Scripture. Just spend some time in it. If you've not read the Bible yet, uh, and you want to, I can give you a chronological reading plan. I'd be glad to provide that for you because it can get confusing but you need to read the whole thing. And don't try to understand the whole thing in that first sitting, just read it. And then go back and begin to break it down and study it, ask questions. As you look at commentaries, make sure you're very careful because there's some junk out there. And even I can't filter through all the stuff just by the author. Just so, you know, well, I'm not going to read that. I can't, I don't have that kind of information or or knowledge of all the people who write. And so make sure you're looking for the facts of history, of the language, of the culture, uh, of where is it pointed to in other scriptures or fulfilled in prophecy. And then you take whatever interpretation that person has with a grain of salt. Even if they got a bunch of letters after their name, take it with a grain of salt. And pray through it, because our, our context of what this, the Bible teaches has been greatly skewed since the 1800s by the Great Enlightenment. and our, our, Ironically, our pursuit of knowledge has really twisted our understanding of knowledge. And so be very careful. Read old books, read often, and most importantly, just pray. I have a little prayer that I lift up every time I open my Bible. Lord, give me eyes to see what you're doing, give me ears to hear what you're saying, and give me a heart to understand. That's straight out of Isaiah. You know, God said that there be people who have eyes but they do not see, ears but they do not hear, and hearts of stone that they do not understand. Lord, don't let that be us. Right? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. Give us a clear understanding of what you're teaching us in your word. And just be slow and careful with it and just ask those questions. Does that make sense? All right. Any thoughts or questions about how you apply that? You know, or how you apply scripture as you answer those questions, because you can know all about it. And if you don't apply it, that's not helpful at all. I'd just like to say one thing. If you're interested in going through Matthew, we're doing it right now. Okay. It's up in this classroom at 8.15, to 8.30, so uh, shameless plug. Yeah, 8.15, every Sunday morning, yep. right up here. Yeah. Going through Matthew. <laughs> Anything else? And I one other thing, Jonathan. I noticed this next worship or this sermon series, Knowing God, there's a great book out from uh, J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recommend that. That's a that's a amazing, amazing book. Short chapters. Yeah. Pictures. Hey, Jonathan. Yeah. One other thing the church does, I don't know if you're aware, but we have a, a program where groups of people get together and read through the Bible over a course of about two years. Mm-hmm. They meet once a week as a small group, and they read a couple chapters, and they get together on a weekly basis. Talk about it and what did they see in it. So that's a great program. I'm mm-hmm. in that program right now. And mm-hmm. it's a great program. Yep. If you're interested in that, uh Ben can tell you more about our discipleship groups that do that. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, you know, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. That's all we do. Yep. And, and we need to really, if we don't do Bible study, we need to study God. Mm-hmm. Not interpretation, not somebody else's view on it. Right. But but mm-hmm. We need to have that focus. That should be our foundation. Right. So I appreciate you saying that and emphasizing that. Right. That's one of the problems I'm facing at that church congregation right now. Yeah. Yep. Right, and just start with what it says, and and wrestle with that, because a lot of the commentaries are trying to explain away what God's word says, instead of just wrestling with what it actually says. Mm-hmm. I want to leave you with a couple of resources. I'm a big podcast guy. I don't know if you like to listen to audiobooks or podcasts when you're working out or in the car. Uh, I I do, I've gotten to where I don't want to waste that time. Um, So two podcasts I want to give you. Uh, One is called the Caldwell Commentaries podcast and it's an older lady and you just got to deal with her annoying voice. but it is very, very good uh, biblical teaching, and very, it's, a lot of it's focused on the typologies of Scripture. So, for instance, the, uh, how is the ark a typology of Jesus? How is the tabernacle a typology of Jesus or, and, the, and the heaven uh, to come? I mean, when G, uh, John, so interpret Scripture with Scripture, when Jesus showed up in John's account of it, Uh, He literally says that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Well, that should be a great big sign to go back and look at the description of the tabernacle to learn something, because there's chapters and chapters of describing the tabernacle. That's important. Um, So the Caldwell commentaries, uh, Joseph is a typology of Jesus. Uh, So we can see that. And then another one is a guy named Stephen Armstrong, and there's a website called Verse by Verse Ministries um, out of San Antonio. Stephen Armstrong has since passed away, but uh, he just teaches verse by verse. It's very simple, uh, breaks it down. If if you want an in-depth verse by verse study of scripture, that's a great podcast. There's multiple books. Um, he has a very particular theological sway, but that's fine um, because he's just breaking down scripture for the most part. So. Stephen Armstrong, Stephen with a PH. You get that in your email? Yeah. All right, All right. All, right. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well thank you guys. I hope you know that this is this is doable.